Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening. This is C. Travis Webb, editor of The American Age. You know, The American Age podcast is not technically a professional podcast. None of us uh, work for a large podcasting outlet, and we don't have sponsors. Uh, That being said, we do do our best to make a professional podcast. That is, we do our best to make the sound and quality of the podcast sound as good as something you might download from NPR uh, or The Atlantic or any of the other various podcasting outlets that are out there. Uh, We didn't quite reach that bar in this podcast, as you'll see. Uh, We had a technical difficulty that fried one of our audio feeds, and so we had to rely on our backup recording method, which we use on all of our podcasts, which is recording over Skype. So this podcast, uh, which I think was a great conversation and introduces you to one of our new co-hosts, Sarah Bond, um, the quality isn't going to be quite there. But uh, for the most part, the conversation is uh, discernible, and you should be able to pick out what's being said. So as always, we very much appreciate you listening uh, and uh, – We will definitely get back to the quality that you expect in uh, future episodes. Thanks very much. This is C. Travis Webb, editor of The American Age, and I am speaking to you from uh, pretty hot and sunny Southern California. Hi, this is Stephen G. Fulda, the co-founder of the Nomadic Archivist Project. I want to take full control or credit for founding the Nomadic Archivist Project. I'm coming to you from Harlem, and it's too hot. Amen to that. I'm Seth Rodney. I'm a senior editor at the Hyperallergic Arts Magazine and recent author of The Personalization of the Museum Visit. And I'm coming to you from the South Bronx. Uh, I am Sarah Bond. Hi, I'm associate professor of history at the University of Iowa and a public historian who blogs and writes a lot about particularly ancient and medieval history. And where are you talking to us from, Sarah? Where oh, are you I'm today? in Iowa City, Iowa. Steamy <laughs> Iowa City, Iowa. <laughs> this is to remind our listeners that we practice a form of what we like to call intellectual intimacy, uh, which is giving each other the space and time to figure out things out loud and together. And as you probably surmised, we have an additional contributor today on the podcast and uh, who we hope is going to be with us for a while, but, you know, it's sort of feeling everything out. Um, and that's Sarah Bond, who you just heard from. So Sarah, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and your specialty and and why, um, I don't know, why you're here? Besides the fact that we invited <laughs> sure. you and begged, sure. and, begged, and begged you to be here. Yeah, that, that would be it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I know it might seem odd to have somebody who specializes in ancient history, but I actually specialize in a lot of social justice issues uh, that transcend just the ancient world and look a lot at ancient slavery. Um, I used to work at Monticello, which I will probably um, bring up another time or two, especially um, in future podcasts, that I became interested in social justice in part because I started as an archaeologist and excavating sites in Sicily, but it was really working at Monticello that I began to think about relationships between themes from antiquity and then themes from today and how they have relationships and how they have antecedents with each other uh, and how important it is to understand um, how the shaping of narratives today really then shapes how we see the the past and and how we understand things. So uh, I think that I 
focus predominantly on a lot of issues around labor unions. My first book was called Trade and Taboo, and it was about how labor unionization in the ancient world allowed for ancient workers and artisans to have collective abilities to get good contracts and good pay um, and insurance. So a lot of the issues that, that I will probably discuss and bring into the podcast um, are issues that I've worked on in how they manifest within the ancient world. But I'm also very interested um, in, in those same issues today. So just because I wrote a book about ancient labor unions, that also required me to do a whole lot of um, understanding of unionization and the Industrial Revolution and things uh, that that far uh, that, that go far outside the pre-modern history world that I was trained in. So um, I really, I guess I, I'm interested in all periods of, of history, yes. um, even if, if I specialize in Latin and Greek as, as my two best languages. It's funny, sir, if I can make an observation that the degree to which that you felt you needed to justify your academic specialty that it's relevant <laughs> to, to the things that we're doing today is is an aspect of the academy. Right. Like the fact that I mean, that, oh, like, of, I think, of course, yeah. of course, your your expertise in that area is relevant today. Like, of course it is. And of course, because you've studied something in depth means that you can bring that intelligence to a totally seemingly tangential issue. Like the fact that we and, mm -hmm. and you're not alone in feeling the inclination to do that, right? I mean, this is something if you go to academic conferences, it, there's so much tiptoeing around like, well, I haven't done all eight languages in that, you know, time period, but well, I can I possibly <laughs> like, okay, we get it. It's fine. Just say, so I wasn't, I, I appreciate the background. And I, when Seth, I mean, Seth and, and Sarah have uh, they've worked together at Hyperallergic, uh, and when Seth recommended mm -hmm. that uh, that Sarah might be someone that was interested, I left at the opportunity because I think I think contextualizing the United States in historical sweep is something that's sorely needed uh, in in all corners. Uh, so uh, I'm very happy that mm -hmm. you're here. Yeah, we all are. Indeed, all right. I'm glad to yep. be here. Uh, so we are finishing our uh, last podcast on climate change, and mm -hmm. as we've as the pattern we've kind of fallen into, and Sarah's going to weigh in when she feels like it. Um, um, we like to you know kind of start with an overview, and we take particular issues, and we try and come at those issues a little bit differently, and then we we kind of do a final uh, summation. So, Stephen or Seth, do you uh, maybe where are you guys at with? the conversation the topic like what have we <laughs> learned anything have we become more frustrated <laughs> well what do you guys think well i think that one of the things that this conversation has done for me is it well for one it forced me to finally look at an inconvenient truth i mean a movie came out i don't know mm -hmm. years ago, mm -hmm. like 20 years ago mm -hmm. uh and i hadn't bothered to see it and now I understand why it was such a, a big deal and at the same time why it was so reviled. Because in a, in a way, like Stephen said, uh, I think the last time we talked about it, it is a kind of glorified TED Talk. Mm -hmm. However, um, mm -hmm. it, 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 it does that thing that I think, I think a lot of climate scientists wish they could do, which is it begins to set fire to uh, public opinion, it begins to like, it begins to in, inflame it and and make people 
understand, and not make, but encourage people to understand that what we're talking about, and I like that, that people like Ocasio-Cortez says it this way, we're talking about a crisis. It's, it's a crisis that's unfolding slowly, but it's a crisis. And I think mm. that's the sort of point of clarity I've come to through our conversation around climate change. And I don't think I was there before. So I was thinking similar about the, um, you know, what, you said, what I said about the dead dog, but I, I thought that the entertainment industry and how we've been sort of inundated with all the these movies around what happens when climate change happens, that it's a sort of, it's a way to sort of get people desensitized to it, you know, that it's just inevitable. That's what I kind of took from a lot of what we, we've been talking about related to um, climate change, that people feel that it's inevitable, that they don't have any part in it or feel like it's sort of hopeless. So, you know, recycle, but what will it do? That kind of thing. I took that away from the argument. I was wondering how to, and I think I said this in one of the podcasts, how do you make something important to people when they're not, it's not on their plate? It's not part of the daily diet. It's not a part of the daily thing you do, right? I mean, I think a lot about recycling in areas where they're food deserts. <laughs> You're just trying to eat. <laughs> You're trying to live every day. So, so how do you do that? So I think I took that from it. And I was thinking that climate change, even though this is our last episode, we could take it in a lot of other directions as well. But we can think about climate change as a way to, I like the fact that Sarah's here because then she could kind of bring in, okay, so <laughs> was there anything comparable to the idea of climate change in, in the medieval space, you know, anything at all? The, the most well-known uh, was just that simply it got, uh, there was what we call a, a mini ice age during the high middle ages um, right. that had a, a very global effect. Um, and this was something that people noticed, obviously that it was getting colder um, and mm -hmm. people wrote down in chronicles and in primary documents, um, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't seen as as something that could be um, resisted against, right? So a lot of the reactions okay. that we hear um, are, in many ways, reverberated within the evangelical community today. That when okay. there are changes in the weather, that it must be because God is angry, mm -hmm. right? Um, right? I mean. That there were a lot of narratives after 9-11 and have been many narratives after uh, many environmental disasters as well from Christian communities that say, for instance, that this shows us that we're sinful people, that this is part of God's wrath. And so we aren't the agents. It's God's agency. And so we can't do anything to combat it except for be less sinful. And that's uh, a lot of the take within, within the Middle Ages um, as well. So... I think, I think it, I, well, and I think it, it affects us too. I mean, it affects secularists too. I mean, you know, the Lisbon quake in 1755, which basically absolutely devastated the city, changed the direction of Rousseau's philosophy, right? I mean, it happened on a Sunday. Like, it was not that he was a God fearing man exactly, but that, that you know, we are intimately affected and connected to the planet out of which we arose, right? And, and, and of course, as far as our responses to it go, mm -hmm. you know, to to round out the the initial sort of like where we're at in climate change, you know, I, I tend to have just by disposition, I think, a more sanguinary opinion of most things. And so 
climate change, you know, I, I sort of feel like, well, we're, we're socially wired monkeys and we're not really great at figuring out what's going to happen in the distant future. We're good at like assessing threats at the edge of the savannah and, you know, we're doing the best we can. Mm. And, but, you know, one of the things that came out in our conversation about, and that's probably something that age has caused, but uh, I was certainly less sympathetic about my fellows when I was younger. But one of the things that came out in our conversation, Stephen and uh, Seth earlier before you were with us, Sarah, is that, you know, it's very easy to be sanguine when my immediate future is not under threat, right? right. But like, what, like mm, one of the analogies yeah, we talked absolutely. about was population displacement is ancient, right? And that's mm -hmm. what will happen in climate change, right? The poor will get fucked as they always have. The run of it. And, and so Absolutely. it's, and, and it's, I think it's important for me, right? Not necessarily for you guys, but for me to remember that and to hold on to that and to, and to not mm -hmm. be quite so Zen-like about my, uh, uh, my sympathies for, well, we're doing the best we can. Well, we're probably not doing the best we can. We probably can do a bit better <laughs> for the people that are going to suffer the most when sea levels mm -hmm. rise, when water shortages continue to expand, uh, when water mm -hmm. table supplies are contaminated. You know, we can probably do better mm -hmm. for the people in Flint. We can probably do better for um, the people in the Maldives or, you know, wherever is going to be swallowed by the oceans. So. Well, maybe I mean, this is one of the things, too, that comes out of the whole climate change discussion for us is realizing that the very things that are sort of endemic or most clearly descriptive of the of our species uh, are our inability to plan past tomorrow, mm. um, mm. Uh, 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 our sense of um, our sense of sort of clannishness and, and tribal um, affiliation, sort of, um, really making our politics what they are. Mm. Lots of other things that I could name. Mm. These things all kind of get shown in greater relief through the climate change crisis. Because the climate change crisis mm. makes it obvious that one of the things that we'd like to do, that we would we tend to do even before we actually begin to enact real social change in the way that we behave is we, we like to create fantasies about what the end looks like. So ergo, Stephen, um, what, uh, what Stephen alluded to earlier, which is a spate of movies from basically the end of the 90s through now mm -hmm. that show us mm -hmm. being destroyed in all kinds of mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. Hollywood, Hollywood-fied ways, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, 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 aliens coming down, um, tsunamis wiping out entire... Meteors, meteors. Uh, yeah, meteors Volcanoes. Right. <laughs> exactly, like... <laughs> Yes, yeah, so in LA. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. right. The orgy of destruction, right? Is something that is is the is the like the signifying monkey likes to do. Like in all in like in, in like he makes this little pile of whatever and like plays with it and, and like look at all this stuff that I can do. And in a way, like in a way, like in it's in a in a way, it's like staving off destruction by focusing on the thing that we make that is a picture of our destruction. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd and in a way fascinating psychological game we play with ourselves, but climate, the climate change crisis makes it obvious, more obvious to me, that that is the game we love to play with ourselves. 
and I yeah, and I think and I think along those lines to riff on that for a second, I think that's what you see honestly more on our side of the aisle when it comes to I mean as far as the left in our politics, which is that there's a lot of rhetoric around what needs to be done for the climate and what should be done for the climate. But in reality, the actual practice of how we live is not altered at all, right? Mm. I mean, as far you know, I'm thinking sort of like Silicon Valley, for example, mm. is one of the major pro- – so like building these like cold storage supercomputers mm. is tremendously <laughs> environmentally costly. The amount of rare earth mm-hmm. metals that go into making the silicon wafers and all the rest of this stuff. So it's – but yet – we would absolutely, if we were to identify sort of an aspect of corporate America that's serious about climate change, it would be Silicon Valley, right? There, Apple, Google, they're talking about it, right? They have Facebook campaigns. No, maybe mm-hmm. you, you, you would not do that stuff, but that is not that is a move that would not be strange to see, whether it be in mainstream media or even maybe even the Huffington Post. Well, maybe not Huffington Post, but um, but that you know the scale to which the crisis needs to be addressed mm. is is basically unprecedented and is mm-hmm. not something that rhetoric is going to fix it's something that is going to take uh, you know a massive readjustment uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, scale <laughs> and, uh, not to, to yeah. trail too far off i i think that yeah, I, I think that that's very true. But I also think that Americans in particular are um, very conditioned towards immediate responses and visual mm-hmm. change. That when we see mm-hmm. visual change, uh, we very much know that we should react to it and we should do something to, to rectify it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I sat in a theater in Chapel Hill and watched Inconvenient Truth, and they put that cartoon gone. Um, it was one of the first times I had ever thought about, you know, this analogy that was being used of, of the frog heating up in boiling water. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not jumping out immediately mm-hmm. because he doesn't quite know that he's mm-hmm. getting cooked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think right. Americans, uh, we, we oftentimes are told um, that what is economically beneficial at the moment moment to us should take precedence over uh-huh. kind of a long-term uh-huh. um, economic condition that we may not be able to see over the long durée. The long durée is very, very difficult for us, I think, sometimes to, I would say as a species, to wrap though, our not, minds around. And not so, just Americans, though. I mean, I would say, I mean, I think other cultures also have a difficult time, I think, dealing with um, the long sweep of history and the ultimate consequences of how we're living now. I don't think mm-hmm. it's, I mean, right, it's certainly true of America, but it's capitalism, capitalism as an economic I system thought... kind of conditions us in a different way than socialism does um, in terms of the goodwill of humanity. I mean, the rhetoric mm-hmm. surrounding socialism is just very different in terms of the collective versus the individual of capitalism. And so I, I think that, is not obviously think, capitalism is not only American, but so if if I can push it that a little bit, so you think that socialism inherently orients people towards the long now, the future, as opposed to. Mm. But if that were true, it would be essentially utilitarianism, because if you if 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 it were true that 
you would be willing to sacrifice the present for a greater future. I mean, this is the rhetoric of Chin Shi Huang. This is the rhetoric of like sort of we, we can, you know, we must collectively sacrifice now so that the future can be glorious. And so I don't think socialism necessarily does a better job of orienting us towards the future. I think you could make an argument that it does a better job of redressing the inequalities now, right? Like sort of how the poor are suffering mm. now. But it's very feasible, and undoubtedly there are libraries of science fiction novels written about the ways that the present can be sacrificed to a greater future. And so I, I don't and, – and that that's, that is, from my point of view, um, the justification for a lot of inhuman policies. Um, so I, I don't I, – you know, capitalism as it's – a, it's a shorthand that often gets used by people that share our politics to sort of – out of hand dismiss um, the um, kind of the current state of affairs, right? So if if we could wipe if we could wipe away the current system, we would have a better future. And where I think the boundary condition is just is our own sort of natures, right? Our own jealousies, our own. You realities. don't think that capitalism is more inherently narcissistic as a system? Than perhaps socialism, that perhaps socialism is less narcissistic and thus more future-facing than I, capitalism. I definitely would not ascribe narcissism to one or the other. I think narcissism is a personality tendency, and economic systems do not necessarily produce personalities. But it kind of feels like you're not really addressing it, Travis. That's a really good question, though, when you think about it. Does one think more of oneself versus the collective? Is that what you're getting at, Sarah? So mm -hmm. I think that thinking of the collective can be just as self selfish as thinking of oneself. Oh, explain that, good sir. So you can only you can you can only ever be in your own head, right? So I think that again, to use my very low-hanging fruit, easy example, I think that Chen Shi Huang, who was the first emperor of China, who perpetrated uncountless brutal acts against what would become Chinese citizens—they weren't at the time; they were a variety of tribes. I be he believed that what he was doing was acting for the greater collective. I do not think that collective action leads to virtuous behavior, and I think history bears that out. Don't know about the is it the, the rhetoric of collective action, though, or is it the actuality? Because I think sometimes we use the rhetoric of collectivity for the greater good in order to mask a, a individual will. Um, and that's mm. what emperors like Augustus did. That's what Constantine would do. Many, many a Roman emperor would use the idea of the collective sinatus populusque Romanus as a foil for um, their objectives on an individual level. And so I, I guess we sometimes have to separate the, the rhetoric of the collective verse, versus a virtuous um, attempt at the collective, which I think most socialist uh, tendencies mm. within governments today are kind of going for. So I would say that I, I, would say that I um, am sympathetic mm. to that move, but I think it assumes a lot. And I think... It grants a um, essentially you're presupposing because of the outcome that was, you know, the outcome of Imperial Rome, the outcome of 
sort of, you know, what these people did in order to accomplish their goals, acquire power, etc. Right. I would say that you're because of that, you're then you're trying to unmask it and saying, well, OK, it's not really acting for the collective. So we're saying that any action that's done for the collective that leads to an inhuman consequence, therefore, must necessarily be someone's selfish action. No, I don't think she's being that facile with her reasoning. I don't, no, no, I, 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 mean, I, I, no, no, I am, I, I am, I am simplifying in order right. to make a point. I agree right. that Sarah's not doing that. What I'm right. saying is okay. that, I'm saying that, if that's the move you make, then I can't bring any counterexample because the argument is always going to be no, that was that person's selfish right. attempt at a power grab. Right. So, so I, I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. No, go ahead, Travis. I'm no, no, sorry. no, please, no. I'm, I'm done. Please go ahead. Well. I, I I I want to pose the question to the group. It's simply C climate um, change. But well, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. No, what I'm saying. Where do you think our best hopes lie? Like, I mean, if we if we continue with this sort of um, what's it? What what did what is the what did the writer in the 1619 magazine call it? The low road capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, if we continue with that, right? That sort of supercharged. Uh, mercenary, uh, mm -hmm. devil take the hindmost capitalism that we have here mm -hmm. in the States mm -hmm. versus the kind of socialism, and you know, these are terms that, that could use some, um, mm -hmm. um, we could, I could be more, a bit more specific about what I'm talking about, but let's just say, let's take the uh, mm -hmm. example of Sweden, the kind of socialism there, right, where you have 90% of the people, I think it's either Sweden or Iceland, 90% of the people are in unions. Um, where you have a version of, a, and it's really a mix of socialism, capitalism, but you have that kind of culture, that kind of society. Where do you think our hopes lie in terms of climate change? With our example or with that template? Because, so, I mean, for me, the, the answer is super obvious. Yeah, okay. So I think, I think that because it's super obvious is a problem. <laughs> so okay, right. I think that you're taking a small homogenized society with deep cultural similarities and roots and looking at their ability to act collectively. Right. And you're saying that's the model for us. But we are a heterogeneous society, a very large, unwieldy, possibly untenable heterogeneous society. Fair and enough. so I I don't think I and this is I would not ever defend unrestrained capitalism. I'm not even sure where I sit on defending capitalism per se. I just am absolutely against the ready at hand dismissal of a system under whose watch a number of things have changed in human history that had not changed prior to that. Mm. So I'm not saying that you know I, I'm not a, I'm not a, a great defender of of uh, unrestrained capitalism. Uh, I do think that the now you, one of you can help me out, but I get so when we get to 1619. I loved the loved. Uh, I found compelling and persuasive the connection between American style capitalism and uh, plantation mentality. I think mm -hmm. that's that rings true to me. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as a system that apotheosizes the best and worst of what it means to be human mm. i think that capitalism 
unleashes that, makes that realizable, manifests it in the world. Mm. Um, and so I don't know. So like something, let, let's take the to say to try and come back to climate change. Let's take that as an example. I don't know how mm -hmm. we address climate change without a capitalist solution. Because I don't mm -hmm. know how we do that without money, without mm -hmm. monetizing it on some level. What other purely signifying fungible object do we have to motivate people but money? Governmental what power. else do we, what else right governmental so power. And, and you know what I, I am suspicious of government because governments historically have not proven themselves to be very reliable partners for the individual mm -hmm. now uh, no no you're right no so, no that's that's no that's true yeah, like okay. yay 1970s france but yeah. i wouldn't have wanted to live in france in the 18th century like yeah. Fuck that. Like, yeah. I, I don't I don't inherently trust governments. I, I mean, collective action, I think, is dangerous in general. So, well, what, well, I mean, what the, the example that comes to my mind um, and, I, and I know that we're going to have to wrap this up soon. Um, <laughs> yes. Is mm -hmm. that is 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 Great Britain and the United States um, coming together? Um, well, but really, it's Great Britain's fault coming together and, and making the, de the, the debacle that was Palestine. Right. Mm. Like the way they just divvied up Palestine and said, hell yeah, you know, state mm. of Israel should be here and Palestine as well. You know, they'll they'll sort it mm -hmm. out mm. Or, or Great Britain and, and, and the um, and the partition right uh, between India and Pakistan. Like you're right, like governmental power sometimes like with sometimes screws it up so bad that we don't actually understand how bad things are until it's like a century later. So you have a point. Anybody else want to weigh yeah, in? Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess what I, what I see is that economic competitiveness is part of a capitalist system. And so I think that the road to climate change within the United States is much more in terms of um, policy and incentivizing through economic incentives, um, the shifting uh, towards things that are seen as greener. And I think we were already doing this really in the 90s when um, Earth Day and recycling overtook our televisions um, and green became a commercial selling point. But I think you're right mm -hmm. that it can't just be policy and government on its own. It has to be married with the idea that this is marketing to the populace and that companies will oftentimes do this in order to get you know good spin. So for instance, you know, mm -hmm. talking about... Go when you go to a hotel room these days and they tell you that they're trying to be green and they don't actually wash the sheets every night unless <laughs> right, 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 tell right. them to, I, economic suspicion in me is you just don't want to pay to wash the sheets every night, but it is green in order to not absolutely. It's it's worse than greenwashing. Well, uh, I don't want to take up the time, but th there's a great thing in support of what you're saying, but I'll, I'll leave it there. So I, um, but anyway, so. Stephen, you were going to yeah, say. So in Iowa, oh, we, oh, have, we have wind farms. <laughs> yeah, we have, a, we have a lot of wind farms that are, that are um, becoming much more popular. Um, but of course, wind farms are then supplanting a lot of other forms of energy. Um, President Trump is, is in, not in support of them. Um, he, he says that they make too much sound, that they create pollution. <laughs> um, he, he is against wind farms, but that is because of an economic interest 
uh, I think, right. and the lobbyists that support him, For rather sure. than the reality that we could transition Iowa to be much more of a win state. And that's where we were headed under Obama um, up until the 2016 election. But um, mm. yeah, there have to be economic incentives for farmers to transition from growing soybeans and corn to being wind farmers now. Um, Steve, so yeah, there has Steven, to be tax wanna, incentives. And Stephen, do you want to close us out? No, 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 you nope. got, you have to get it. <laughs> nah, I mean, so I was just stuck on something you said, is money the only motivator in a capitalist society for people to change? That's all I have to say. I'm still mm-hmm. marinating. This is a great question. Because I'm not so sure if it's true. It's but a fair yeah, question. That's all. No, it's a, that's a fair question. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that's a fair question. Um, so, um, and I probably would argue against myself in answering no, that's probably not the only motivator. So Agreed. But, but, Agreed. I'm a yeah. no on that too. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, so, okay, so Sarah, thank you. Welcome to the podcast. I, I, it was this is great. I, I, I like the shift in dynamic, uh, shift in dynamics. Nice. So, uh, and I'll speak to all of you next week. Yes. Yep. Sounds that's good. good. Take yes. Care. Later. Take care. Bye bye.